Well, Pastor Brian has been taking you through the Gospel of Luke during this summertime, and he has been doing it two chapters at a time. And so we arrived this Sunday at Luke chapters 9 and chapters 10. So if you have your Bibles, that's where you can turn to, is chapters 9 and 10. Luke is an original writer in the fact that he is different than the other three writers. Matthew, Mark, and John all come from a Jewish background. Luke is a non-Jew, or what they would call a Gentile at the time. So he writes from a little different perspective. He's a physician. And so we know that probably miracles are fascinating to him, and so he'll report a lot about that during his writing. And as we go through uh, chapters 9 and 10, there's a lot of familiar accounts that Luke writes in here. And so as we try to be able to put all this together, some of them are going to be very familiar. Chapter 9 deals with um, the feeding of the 5,000. It deals with uh, Peter's confession. You have the, what, what is known in, in uh, church lingo as the transfiguration. Basically, Jesus appears on a mountain, and, and the disciples see two other images up there. And then chapter 10, which is unique in the fact that only Luke writes these events, we have the, the great, uh, great parable of the, the Good Samaritan, and then the story of Mary and Martha. And only Luke writes about those. And so there's no way, as Pastor Brian has probably told you throughout the, the series, there's no way we can touch on every part of these two chapters. And so what we're going to try to do is highlight some of the ideas that we have here and, and glean from them. So uh, let's, let's play, pray before we begin. Father in heaven, as we, as we prepare to share your word, would you just guide and direct the words and that we'd be able to share what you would want us to share and learn what you'd want us to learn through these passages. And we give you honor and praise this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. We can look at these two chapters, and as I was studying and trying to put them together, one thing kept popping up to me, that both chapters 9 and chapter 10 begin with the same idea. Jesus is sending out people to share about his kingdom. And so since both of them are dealing with the kingdom and beginning with that, I thought this morning I would talk to you about the kingdom of God. And, of course, that, that says a lot, so we're going to try to go through it and pick out some things and, and talk a little bit about it. Uh, chapter 9 begins with Jesus talking to his disciples. And in that point, he tells them in verse 1, he says, One day Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal the diseases. He sends them out in verse 6. Says, so they began their circuit of the villages, preaching the good news and the healing of the sick. And so he says he sends them out, every one of them, about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. What we have um, now is, is there is a preparation time that we have seen Jesus taking through his, his disciples. In the beginning, what Luke tells us about who Jesus was from his birth to his childhood, what little we know of that childhood. He, he chooses his disciples in a, in a manner where he begins to bring them together. Then there's this period of the time where uh, there's the miracles, and Pastor Brian shared you about the faith that we must have in the miracles, and, and that is still a part of our life today. Uh, but now all the preparation is done, and it's time for Jesus to begin to send out these disciples. It's time to launch the kingdom. He's been, he's been preparing for it. But the kingdom is an interesting and most misunderstood time, even in our day, but much more in their day. You, you have three aspects of a kingdom in the Bible times. You have, you have the, the Roman Empire, which is the kingdom, and you've got the, 
that, that idea of a, a physical and powerful kingdom. You have, you have the Jewish leaders who believe that there will be a Messiah, a conqueror who will come and overthrow the Roman government and put a, a, a Jewish leader back in the, in the likes of David and Solomon and restore Israel to its prominence. But Jesus' kingdom is far different than either one of those. And so as we begin to look at it, we see the preparation happening in chapters 9. And begin now chapter 9, we begin to see the process going out as Jesus sends his people. And then chapter 10, he'll send out the 72 doing the same thing. But they're preaching that the kingdom is near. You see, for them, Jesus is leading up to it. The kingdom is near. He's, he'll return to Jerusalem. He'll go through the trials. He dies. He's resurrected. We celebrate that on Easter. In ushers the kingdom of God. And so as he's going here, we're getting near the point where he's going to head to Jerusalem, so it's near. So he wants to start to prepare the people. But they have to get the right kingdom mindset. What is it that he wants them to learn? And so as they begin to go out, we see that they do both. They, they, they're, going, they're, they're preaching the kingdom, but they heal the sick. That tells me one major thing in both of them, that Jesus not only wants a spiritual kingdom, which indeed it is, but he wants us to live healthy and good in our time on earth. And so as, as they begin to send out, and the, a lot of things begin to happen because we, we see here that, that, that in verse 6 it says they began to preach the good news. And so the kingdom is obviously good news. It's good news for the Jewish people because they believe, well, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. And, and others are Jesus seeing people's lives change, and those are good things. But there's one guy that doesn't think that the good news is such good news. And we find him in the palace in Galilee, and that is, again, King Herod. Now, this is a different King Herod than the one we had during the birth of Jesus. This is King Herod, the great son, King Antipas. Now, remember King Herod the Great? He was the one that was so threatened by the, the birth of Jesus that he, he wants to worship him, so he challenges the wise men to tell him where he's at because he wants to go out and find him. And, and he ends up driving himself crazy over the fear and threatening of who Jesus was and what was going to happen to his kingdom. Well, uh, what, what's the old thing then? That doesn't fall from, far from the tree. King Antipas is the same way. He begins to hear all these things about Jesus. And beginning in verse 7, let, let's look what happens with, with King Herod here. And verse 7 says, When Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about everything Jesus was doing, he was puzzled. Now, other... Other translations say he was perplexed. But one way or another, he didn't know what was going on. All of a sudden, his kingdom is in this craziness. People are changing. There's stuff happening. And, and he's wondering, what is this? He hears about this new kingdom. So he calls some of his people together, and he says, who is this he's talking about? And they said, well, some say that's John the Baptist. Well, Antipas sits back and goes, well, how can it be John the Baptist? I just had him killed. So it can't be him. Well, who else is it going to be then? And he says, well, some of them said, he's probably, maybe he's raised from the dead. Or maybe others thought Jesus was Elijah or one of the great prophets. And Herod goes, well, I, I don't know, but all I want to know is who is this man? And I want to know about these stories that he's telling. And then verse 9 ends up, he says, and he kept trying to see him. Now, uh, we know that, that Herod is threatened again by, by, by Jesus. I'm sure that this is not the first that he's heard of Jesus. In the household, I'm sure that was a name that was a constant threat to the kingdom. 
Now, uh, his dad had to deal with an infant, a child. Herod has to do, Antipas has to deal with the man himself. And he is out there now just causing chaos in his kingdom. People are, people are changing, things are happening, and he doesn't know what's going on. So he wants to find him and wants to see him. Now, I don't know how many times he saw him. I don't think there was a time prior to the time when Jesus arrives for his trial in Jerusalem. Luke, in 23, tells of an encounter. Jesus has gone through the trials. He's gone to Pilate. Pilate doesn't know, doesn't care what he wants to do or whatever, so he sends him down to Herod because he's the guy in charge. And so at this point, Herod and Jesus finally meet. And in verse 8 of chapter 23, we read that Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Here's his moment. He is finally getting to the chance to meet this man, meet this Jesus. And he has all kinds of questions, all kinds of things he wants to talk to him about. And he wants to listen about these miracles and what's happening. But Jesus doesn't answer them. Now, and I like to try to picture what that might look like. You have a man who's trying to promote authority and being powerful. And he's standing there before. And, and here's Jesus, this, this humble servant type. And I can, I can almost see this stare out going. Antipas wants to intimidate Jesus and to scare him into it. And I can see Jesus just staring him down and not answering one thing from him, which has to frustrate Herod more and more. And so as they do, all of a sudden, all the priests from around the, 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 the temple area begin to cry out, this is the man that we want you to put to death. He is the danger. And they begin to shout all these accusations out. And so Herod, in the background, he's been pushed back. He doesn't know what to do. He's not getting anything from Jesus. He's getting the pressure over there. And so what does he do then? He begins to follow the crowd. So he begins to mock Jesus himself. And they begin to make fun of him. They ridicule him. It says, finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. So Jesus now is headed back to Pilate. And Luke adds this little thing at the end in verse 12. Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, become friends that day. Now, it's interesting to note that uh, no matter what happens with Jesus, there's a reaction to something. Something's going to happen in your life if you're going to meet Jesus. And here, these two enemies, these two enemies who are battling, trying to understand the power struggle that's going on, unite themselves in their own threatening and hatred for Jesus. And after so many times, they become friends. Now, I'm not sure what kind of friendship they shared together, but I'm sure that it was, must have been interesting. And so we have, we have that situation here. Herod is trying to figure out what, what to do with him. Meanwhile, Jesus is traveling with his disciples. And as they go through and they're traveling, Jesus comes. Now we're going to go to Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. While they're traveling, Jesus makes his way up to a mountain to get away from the time. He wants to spend some time with his disciples. And so verse 18 says, On, the, on a day, Jesus left the crowds to play, pray by himself. Only his disciples went with him. And he asked them, Who do people say that I am? Because by now, the, the question and is owing all through Galilee and beyond. 
Who do the people say that I am? And basically, the disciples repeat what the leaders were telling Herod at the time. Well, it says, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the other ancient prophets who have risen from the dead. But unlike with Herod, Jesus is face to face with the disciples. He takes the question one step further. Okay, that's what everybody else says. But Peter, James, John, Judas, all of you guys, who do you say that I am? And here becomes the decision that faces, to me, every human being who will ever exist on the planet Earth. A decision on what you're going to do with Jesus. What are you going to do? Who do you say he is? Do you just dismiss him as nothing? That's a decision. If you choose to say, well, no, he's, just, he's a good man. We'll, we'll, I'll listen to a couple things he says. That, again, is a decision. Or do you recognize what the Bible says, what it is, that, that Jesus, as Peter cries out to him, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, you are one who has sent from God, you are our promise. Is that the Jesus that you know? Is that the Jesus that you are here, that you're seeking, and that you're worshiping? And Jesus says, that's it, Peter, but at this point, don't let that known because we still have some work to do. If that becomes out now, be able to get the things we do. There will be a time coming that we will reveal that. But right now, my kingdom is not yet ready here to be found. So we've got some work and preparation to do. And so you have these three battles of, of the kingdom. We talked about Herod's kingdom, about the power and the prestige and the, all the wealth and authority that he wanted and, and the promise of the Jewish people believing that a Messiah was going to come to kick Herod off the throne, put them a man of theirs, and then again Israel would rule the world. But what is the kingdom that Jesus is speaking of? What is it like? We are told that it, it is near for them. But for us, because we live in the victory of East, the kingdom is now. We are living in the kingdom. We have that opportunity. And so what do we know about the kingdom? Some basics that we know about the kingdom. First of all, we know that it's good news. It's good news that we get to be in that kingdom. There are good things that are going to happen. Beyond the belief of a, of a royal, a powerful leader on there, we know that Jesus has some great promises, and there's a good thing for us to do. Secondly, we know from, from the time that Jesus stood forth and talked to Pilate in, in John. John gets that, the chapter there when when. Uh, Pilate asked Jesus at the same time he was meeting Herod, he says, you, uh, you know, who are you? Uh, are you a king? And Jesus answers in verse 36 of John 18, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, my kingdom, Pilate, is not what you think here. It's not about how much land you own. It's not much how power you have or wealth or things that you own. It's not that. It's bigger. It's larger. It's not earthly. It's spiritual. It encompasses all of this. And we know, too, that when that, then the, the thief asked Jesus, when they were crucified, he looks over to him and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, from this day forth, you will be in paradise. So we know that the kingdom is paradise. It is eternal. It is a place of rest. 
It's a place of greatness. So those are the things, the basics we know of the kingdom of God. So as we know that, how then do we understand it? And how then do we live in it? If we're living in the kingdom, how, what are the guidelines? We know that in certain, you know, watching, you could not help unless you were living in a cave someplace the last several months about all the royalty of the wedding in England. But all of the little rituals and things that you need to do and all the things. And the best part of that whole thing for me was watching England, watch that dynamic minister from America preach to them. Those guys didn't know what to do. They were getting the gospel, and he was powerful to them. In fact, he says, I better slow down here because we've got to get you married. <laughs> but, but here it was. You, you see that, 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 that type of kingdom. And, 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 but, but for Jesus, it's different. He's, he tells them about there's a good thing that's going to happen. In John 10.10, 10, he talks about the thief, prop, the devil, whatever. He has a, his purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But my purpose, he says, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Now, I prefer the other translations who don't use the word rich because actually it talks about a fulfillment, a filling, a fullness of life. Uh, uh, rich Sometimes we can get that as wealth, and that's not all what Jesus is talking about. In fact, my wife likes to use that word rich quite a bit. She, um, she'll come back, and she's just read something, or I'll ask her, and she's got tears in her eyes, and she's just finished her devotions. And I'll ask her, well, wh what's wrong? Because I figure, I must, obviously, she's crying. I must have done something wrong. Uh, you know, I, I didn't even think what I said this time. But, but she says, oh, no, I was just in the scriptures, and it was just so rich. And... And so that's what he's talking about. He's talking about that. And then, then he says in Matthew 2, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, live right with God, and he will give you everything you need. Now, again, everything you need may not necessarily be that brand new car, that brand new house, that all the stuff that we might, but for you to live in the kingdom, to survive in the kingdom, to be able to, fl to flourish, to be full, to be able to have a satisfying life, Jesus will provide everything you need for that. And that's the kingdom that he promises. And so for Peter, he says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, in one of the other uh, Gospels, he said, Peter, on that, the church will be built. On that confession of me being the Messiah, the, the, the one true one, I will, that's where my church will be. And Peter, that confession is the key to my kingdom. And so you look at Peter, and he's got to be thinking, man, there ain't nobody, anybody better in life than me right now. How can life get any better? I've just made, I've just, I'm one-on-one. I'm, -on -one. I'm buddies with Jesus. We're, we're, we're just great together. And, you know, all the people, you know, probably James and John go, ah, Peter again. You know, the, the rivalry that goes on between them. Uh, and so in verse 22, as we continue a little bit more in that, after that falls up, after all that, Jesus this, then he says, but the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leaders, the priests, and the teachers, and the religious law. He will be killed, and on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. So I can almost picture... You know, Peter's over there sitting there, and everybody's talking. He, you know, he says, hey, John, you want to touch me? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm great. And all of a sudden, 
You know about Jesus here. But, you know, now I'm going to head to Jerusalem. All you guys are going to betray me. I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed. And I'll survive right in the middle. Peter stops. And Mark gives us a little insight. It says, as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to reprimand him for saying such things. Now, I'm going to ask you, how many behind me are going to reprimand Jesus this morning? Peter, you know, Peter's the one that often, so often speaks before he knows what comes out. And he probably spends most of his time reaching back, asking for the words to come back. But Peter was sincere because Peter still had the vision that Jesus was the conquering Messiah, the one that was going to restore Israel's kingdom, overthrow Herod. Israel would then be the most powerful nation in the world. They would have everything that they would want again. But that can't happen if Jesus is dead. So Peter pulls him aside. You know, I don't know what he said. But he said, you know, he was telling Jesus, that ain't going to happen. That's just not happening here today. And then we find here that Jesus turns around and says, and reprimands Peter, says, get away from me, Satan. He said, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not God. Now, this scripture, again, is an interesting one because Peter didn't suddenly turn into the devil. This is not the exorcist. This is not Hollywood movies. Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, that voice is not of you. That is Satan. That is the one, the deceiver, the one that I battled in the desert, the one that I defeated there, and the one I will defeat in the future. He is speaking to you. You don't listen to that. Get behind. Here's what's happening, Peter. You are seeing things merely from a human standpoint, not a godly standpoint. You're not seeing things as the way they should be from God. Peter, in his vision, still saw Jesus sitting on the throne, controlling everything from the human point of view. And so Jesus then continues with Peter, because there's never a time when uh, Jesus doesn't find an incident like that to use it as a teaching tool. And so it, continuing in Luke in chapter uh, 9, 23, he says, so he turns to the crowd. Now, Peter's got to be a little embarrassed. If any of you want to be my follower, he you must turn from your selfish ways and take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are you yourselves lost or destroyed? Now here, Jesus is not telling Peter, you need to kill yourself. Or you need to die to be able to experience this. He's talking about the selfish ways, and again, that yourself must die. Your own selfish desires that put you first must die so then you could do, recognize, and be under the authority of Jesus. And, and that, that's, Peter sees a human standpoint. This is what Jesus says. You've got to turn from your selfish ways. So a kingdom principle that we can just see right here is we want to be part of the kingdom. We need to surrender our selfish ways. For King Herod, a defeat, a surrender is a defeat for him. But a surrender in the kingdom of God is a victory because we are rise above. We are now part of a greater thing, a more powerful thing. And so turn from your selfish ways. Now, that ain't easy. I can tell you that myself. It's so difficult for these disciples. Just a few weeks or so later, we find a little bit later in, in, in Luke's gospel, 
chapter 9, 46. They're continuing on their way to Jerusalem. And this happens. Then his disciples begin arguing. So Jesus, they're walking, and oftentimes you would see the disciples kind of ahead of him a little bit. I mean, that's a Hollywood picture, but that's a good way of probably. Their leader, they usually would surround the leader, and, and they would be talking, and he would be back here and maybe a couple people around him. And as he's watching, he sees the argument. He, he sees them arguing, talking. And a lot of the other ones, you know, he, he comes up and wants to know. But here he says, um, so he says, uh, what have they been arguing about? About which one of them will be the greatest in the kingdom? But Jesus knew their thoughts, and so he brought a little child to his side, and he said, then anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my Father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. Now, Peter has just been embarrassed and whatever, and, and, and Jesus has said, you've got to surrender and turn over your selfish ways. And you, you can't be thinking human point of view. We've got to think of a godly point of view. So they're walking down there, and Jesus goes, what are you guys arguing about? Well, I just think I'm better than, than John and James. Well, I'm, I'm better than Peter. Well, I'm better than all these other guys. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. If that's not selfish. But if that was the only time, that'd be okay. But that wasn't the only time. A little later, in Mark 10, chapter 35, again, we go to a different gospel. But what we find here that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come over and speak to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. So Jesus says, well, what is it that you want? What's your request? They reply, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in the places of honor next to you, one on the right and one on the left. They still haven't got it. And this one you can't blame on Peter. This was, you know, Peter probably told this to Luke. Well, you know, I get in a lot of trouble, but look what James and John did this time. If that was the only time, that'd be okay. Maybe. But again, in what we call the Last Supper, the last Passover that Jesus is spending with his disciples, he comes in and, and they begin to gather around. And a lot of things have gone on during this time. They've, they've, they've gone in, they've got the room and the different things. Jesus told them about going to God to find the donkey. They're all set up. And typically, um, they all sit around ready for the meal. In Luke 9, 28, uh, Luke 22 says, then they began to argue among themselves. Guess what they argued about? About who among them would be the greatest. Now, I, my own opinion, I, this is how I kind of picture this. Uh, typically, in, in those days, you understand that they didn't have interstate highways or different things like that. They walked with sandals and the dust, and it's hot. And it's right. So they're sweating. And so so a, very, a very common practice. Very common practice in the day of Israel during that time. If you entered a home, either a younger child or a servant or someone would wash the people's feet in a state of humility. They'd show them that, you know, in honor, welcome to my home. We're glad that you're here. But what happens is that, that during this time, that doesn't happen with his disciples. Now, for whatever reason, either nobody wanted to take on the role of a servant, which may have keyed the argument. Because somebody might have said, Shouldn't one of us have washed somebody's feet? Yeah, probably, but not me. Maybe him over there. No, not him over there, not me. So this argument breaks up about who should have maybe did it. Now, again, this is just my own interpretation of what might go on. I like to do those things. My mind goes all kinds of places. And I believe that's what happened. And Jesus sitting over here, and he's, 
eating his food, and he just looks over, and I think he just shakes his head. He walks over, and he picks up the pails that should have been washed. And the reason I think Peter's involved in it is because Jesus makes a beeline to Peter. Poor Peter. He walks over and puts that right in front of him and begins to wash Peter's feet. Well, Peter jumps back and says, no, 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 you're not going to do that. And Jesus says, Peter, if I can't do this, if we can't serve together, then you have no part of me. So then Peter says, well, then wash all of me. And, he, and so he wants to dive into the water. Because yeah, Peter means well. He's just constantly getting in trouble. But see how difficult it is to leave our selfish desires aside? We want that place. Our own self pushes us. Somebody does something, automatically our defenses come up, and we want to fight for who we are or what we do. That's in us. That's part of the original sin that's there. That just comes to us. And so we have to work at that. It doesn't come easy. Uh, salvation is a gift, but to, to live in it is a job. It, you've got to keep working for those things. So I think a, a kingdom principle for us is that we, we surrender. Well, we surrender our selfish ways. We be able to live under the authority of Jesus, and we begin then to uh, wa want to serve him and, and to be part of that and give up those things. Well, th another one that we find is an interesting uh, part in the Scripture comes in that, the, the transfiguration, which they, which they call, uh, because the, they see this appearance of, the, of Moses and Elijah up there. Now, the first time I heard this in college, Beginning of verse 28, it says, After eight days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. Now, well, the first time I heard that, I put my hand up and go, Well, how did the disciples know they were Moses and Elijah? How did they, how did they define them? Well, again, understand that Luke is writing years after. And somebody is telling them a story. So it's already happened. So they can tell him. Jesus probably comes down and explains that to him. Because 31 says, they were glorious to see. And they were speaking about the exodus from the world. And, and so obviously, since they weren't up there, Jesus had to come down and explain to them what the discussion was and what was going on. But what happens in verse 32 is interesting. Peter and the others have fallen asleep. Again, I think we're getting John or somebody else's thing. They're going, well, and Peter fell asleep again. So, um, but when they woke up, Jesus, when they, they saw Jesus in the glory and the two men standing, as Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, now how often have we heard that? Peter blurts out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So the first thing Peter says is, wow, look at this. So let's build over here. Let's build you a memorial over here. Let's build something over here for that. And, and all of a sudden, a voice from heaven comes. Now, wouldn't that be interesting if that would just happen to us? A voice from heaven comes down. And it says, from the cloud, and says, this is my son, my chosen one. And if there is not another important thing that comes out of this entire time, it's the words that follow. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. If you want to live in his kingdom, you recognize him as the Messiah. You recognize him as the anointed one, the Christ, the son of God. You ought to listen to him. He probably knows what he's talking about. 
He probably knows what's best for you. He probably has some good things to share to you. Listen to him, the voice says. If you're going to live in his kingdom, you need to be obedient to his word, to what he says. Now, I have never been fortunate enough myself to hear the audible voice of God. Now, there are some people that have told me that they have heard it. Now, some people say it talks through other people. Well, if it talks through my wife, then I have often heard the audible word of God. But outside of that, the, the fact is that where do we get our, where do we hear God? How do we get the information from him? Well, first of all, that's what the word of God is for. We study it. We read it. We, we embrace it. We, we don't just, we just don't leave it here. We, we get into it. We want to know more about it. And the more we do, the more Jesus comes alive. You know, one of my favorite things to do is I, I, I have an old, old Bible, the first one I had. I, I keep it because my mother had given it to me my first day of college. And in it, I have the notes that I wrote all through my years from 1983 or 4 when I started college to whatever. And sometimes I look at what I wrote and I go, what in the world was I thinking? You know, as you read that scripture, have you ever read a scripture and all of a sudden it changes so totally in, after years of reading? Because you're in a different place in your life. And so it touches you in a different way. But as we listen, there are guidelines that Jesus has for us. And he speaks to us and he talks to us. That small voice. I, I believe that because I believe that we were all created by God and that we were separated for him, we still, every human being, I believe, is searching for something. And it's an emptiness. And that emptiness is the missing part of us that God's not there. See, in the garden, Adam and Eve had to reject Jesus. We have to accept him. And so I believe there's left in us this, this desire, this constant longing for God. Now, we might define it in a lot of other different ways, but I believe that's what it is. And I believe it works through a conscience or a lot of different things. That then at times, you know that maybe you ought not be doing something, and there's something tells you it's just not right. And, and it's there. I believe that's that small voice that, that's there for us, that if we listen to it, because there's a lot of voices that I want to talk to you today. There's a lot of voices on the TV, on the radio, wherever you go, that want to tell you this or that. You need to be able to discern what voice you're listening to and understand it. And you won't know God's voice until you know his word. And you won't be obedient to him unless you know what you do to be obedient to. As a kingdom principle, surrender your selfish ways. Listen to him. Be obedient to him. Be diligent in sticking to the things that you have to do. Chapter 10, we have five minutes, we'll do chapter 10, really, we will, we will. Chapter 10 begins in a very similar process that 9 did. Jesus gathers 70 of them and says, send them out two by two. And again, he says, I want you to go out there, and it's, it's not going to be easy. You're going to be welcomed, and you're not going to be welcomed. But don't get, get discouraged and hung up when you're not. Go on, leave, go to the next place. Maybe somebody else can help them, but keep going. I want you to enter a town, welcome you, eat with them, sit with them, heal the sick, and tell them the kingdom of God is near. Because now it's got to the point that Jesus has to expand it. His time is getting closer. He's driving in Jerusalem. He knows it's short. So now he's got to send out more and more people to do that. And as they do, great things begin to happen. People get excited. Mainly because a lot of them thinking again that this is the, the Messiah that's going to overthrow. But here it happens. And, and so they come back. The, the 70 come back. They're all excited. And verse 17, 
says, when the 72 returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Or when you speak in your authority. Jesus, yes. And I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. And you can walk among the snake and serpents and trust them. Nothing will injure you. Now, there's a lot of commentary, a lot of talk on the concept of Satan falling like lightning. But in the context that is here, the way that I see that is they have just returned, the 72 have just returned to Jesus and told him the great success of their preaching about the kingdom and how near it is. A success to me would be that people were believing, people were following. You want to defeat Satan, you follow Jesus. And Jesus says, I know, I know the victories are there because the enemy is falling, and he's falling like lightning. Have you ever watched lightning? It appears fast and boom, what? But it's gone, right? And that's what he said. Satan's just like that. He's gone. Because the power of evangelism, the power of a mission to change people's lives will defeat the enemy every time. Part of kingdom living, I mean, is, is I think it's living victoriously. There's a victory. Jesus has defeated Satan. He, he dealt with him in, the, in, the, in his one-on-one -on -one time in the desert. He defeats him and says, it's over. It's finished on the cross. So we have the promise. And it, it's very common that, to hear things that things are going bad and, and, and we can say, oh, well, Satan's attacking me. Well, if I'm in the kingdom and I have confessed Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and he is in charge, he is my authority, the Satan can do anything that he wants to do. I just don't have to listen to him. So he didn't the temptation can be there, but you can overcome that. And I have often said to myself, my biggest battle is not with Satan tempting me. It's a battle of my wills against Jesus and stuff. You know, I, I said, well, Jesus, I give you my life, but, but can I have that part of it back? I, I, I kind of want to do this still. No, no, no. And so it's a battle of the selfish will. We can live victorious. Doesn't mean victorious life doesn't mean that we have a perfect life. We're not going to hurt. We're not going to lose loved ones. Tragedy is not going to hit us. Things aren't going to happen to us that are not pleasant. All this will happen to us. It's just part of life. But living in the kingdom gives you the tools to go to battle. Faith strengthens you in the time of the worst ad things that are going bad. Finding strength where you never thought before because of the power of God helps you through the most difficult situation. Jesus gives you the tools to live and to live. And I believe kingdom living is kingdom victory. We live in that power. One more. The, the Good Samaritan. Now, there's no way that we can talk in, in three minutes here of what the Good Samaritan means. One of the greatest passages in Scripture, and it's amazing to me that only Luke writes about it. But we, we have here really the contrast of the kingdoms in full force. We have a teacher of the law coming to Jesus in verse in verse 25, and this religious guy of the law, he's an expert, he says, he wants to test Jesus. He has heard enough about this great kingdom and the eternal life. He says, okay, Jesus, then what should I do to get eternal life? And Jesus, in his masterful way, says, well, what does, what does your law say? What does the law of Moses say? Well, the guy says, well, it says, love your Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbors as yourself. And so Jesus says, right, that's exactly right. So now you know what it is, so go do this and you'll live. But I don't think that was what the, the guy wanted. Because he pauses a little bit, and he thinks about it. And so he asked Jesus, well, then who is exactly my neighbor? Because there's some people that I just don't want to love. There's some people I dislike. Like for me, I, I, the Samaritans were the enemy of the Jewish people. I am not going to have anything to do with them. They have no place in the kingdom. And masterfully, Jesus weaves the story. He says, let me tell you a story. Then the man comes down, and he's walking towards Jerusalem. And he's mugged, and he's jumped by a bunch of bandits. And he's left on the road dying, beaten almost to death. And he says, a priest walks by. And as he sees the man lying on the ground, he thinks to himself, he's probably dead. And if I get near this dead body, I'm going to be unclean. And if I'm unclean, I'm going to have to be out of society for a while. So I can't be unclean, because the law tells me not to be unclean. So, I, so he walks all the way around to the other side, because that's what the law says. Then the next time, a, an assistant from the temple comes walking by and looks over and says, I don't have time for that. I've got to get back there and do the rituals and the things that need to go on. I've got, I got to set up all the stuff there and make sure everything's ready for the temple. And so guess who Jesus makes the hero out of this story? Off comes a Samaritan, walking down the road. He comes over to him. He picks up the man. He gets some olive oil out. He gets some salve, and he begins to wrap the man's wounds. He begins to care for him. He lifts him up. He places the man on his own donkey, and he walks the donkey with the man on there. He brings him to the, to the latest uh, Motel 6, and he drops him up there, puts him in there, and says, take care of this man. Keep him as long as you need to. Here's some money here. When I come back in a little while, if you need more, let me have it. And I'll do whatever I need to do to make up the money for it. Just do what I need, and I'll pay you the next time I see you. And so now Jesus looks straight at the guy and says, which one of these would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandit? Now, he could say the priest, but that's not going to look too good for him, is it? He can say, well, the religious assistant, that's not going to look good. So he has to say, well, it's the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, yes, now you go and do the same. You see, there's much more kingdom living. is much more than just saying the right things or having the right answers. That's about right living. We need to put the things and the principles that we have into practice and our practice in our life needs to show results for other people. The greatest testimony you have to anybody around you is when somebody comes up and goes, what's different about you? Something's different about you. No, you haven't lost weight or, you know, I know you. What is it that is different about you? Then you can say, let me tell you about Jesus. And then you have that opportunity. The Apostle Paul knew so well in closing here how that was to happen. In the book of Philip. Philip <laughs> Philippians, he writes to the people, and he, he's sharing to them about the victories we have about being in the kingdom of God. And he says this in, in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. 
Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Isn't that the Good Samaritan summed up right there? But then he goes on. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourself. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Isn't that simply putting away and surrendering your selfish ways? You must have the same attitude of Christ Jesus. Is that not obedience? We like in the church call that Christ-like attitude. But what is that? And Paul goes on. Though Jesus was God, he did not think of himself to be equal with God and not something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God has elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names or the authority above all authorities. And that authority of Jesus in that name of him Every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. If you're in the kingdom and you want to live it, yes, you need to surrender your selfish ways. You need to listen to them, be obedient, enjoy and, and, and embrace the victorious life. But most of all, live it. Be a part of it. Be on your knees. Be in, on authority. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So this morning, my question to you is, which kingdom are you living in? What happens when that decision came and somebody asked you, who do you say that Jesus is? An old, old, song, old song way back, um, Ray Boltz, a Christian singer from years back, had a song called Jesus Real Loud. And he talks about basically, what would happen if I walked into an elevator and the door shut and I said, Jesus, real loud. You want to talk about reaction? Try it. Try it. But what he says is, let God live through you. Embrace his authority. Worship him. Love him. Treat him as Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you as we study together and begin to try to understand your ways. May we have your attitude. May we continue to seek you in all that you say and all that you do. May we be Christ-like in all that we do. May we give you glory, honor, and may we give you the place that you need to be in our lives. We turn away from our selfish ways, and we want to listen to you. And we know that victory is there for us today. Jesus, thank you, and it's your name that we pray.